The scripture reading is from the following passages, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Julie and Andy. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Uh, Y'all, we are taking a short break in our series on Genesis to consider what it means to be an officer in the church and where women fit in that place. So uh, Andres introduced us to uh, leadership in the church two weeks ago. And Clay preached last week on elders in the church, and today I'm going to preach on women's roles in the church. And uh, the reason we don't have a sermon title in your order of worship is um, last week I was preaching at a middle school conference that a lot of uh, year kids were at. This is actually my fifth sermon to preach this week. 
And uh, I was supposed to get the sermon title sent to the printers, and I was delinquent because I was writing all these other sermons. And anyway, just write women's roles in the church, like on your notepad, if you're taking notes. That's what I'm preaching on. Um, I feel like I have y'all's attention today. All right, let's do this thing. Uh, One of the things we believe at Christ the King is that all of God's word is given to us in love and for our good and from our Father. And today's a day where the rubber meets the road for that belief because we're going to look at what the Bible says regarding women's roles in the church. And in 2022, that is a fraught endeavor. And I I wanna acknowledge and grieve that part of the reason that this is fraught is because there are true stories of men abusing their God-given authority at home or in the church. And if that has ever been your experience at Christ the King, I hope that you will make that known to us. I I really mean that. Our views of male leadership are in no way to be used by husbands, deacons, or elders as a way to coerce or manipulate or abuse others, all the while using one's God-given role as a shield from the justice that abusive behavior deserves. My hope is that by, taking, by talking about these matters at Christ the King, that we can all be encouraged towards a healthy embrace and stewardship of the ways that God has called us to participate in the life of his church family. So I want y'all to know, for this sermon, I'm really indebted to the thought and work of Catherine Duffin and Dan Doriani and Kathy Keller and Kyle Wells. So if I say something that you think is really profound, It's probably one of them, all right? Um, And and I do specifically want to thank you, Catherine. You have been such a gift in this process. Um, Y'all, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word together. Let's pray. Father, I do ask now um, that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And Lord, I I pray that, man, all of us in this room are coming from all different kinds of point of view on, on on a topic like this. And Lord, I pray wherever we are, um, I ask that you would meet with us and that you would help us to see your goodness, uh, particularly through uh, the ways that you have expressed your grace through your son, Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So three points for you this morning. First, God's design. Second, women's roles in ministry. And third, so what? God's design, women's roles in ministry. So what? Let's go. Um, I, I want you to know that in God's providence, my mother is here visiting us this morning, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, for one thing, if any of you are angry with me after the sermon, just know that my mom is in the building, all right? Uh, I, I'm kidding. You, you, like, seriously, you can be angry with me, and if you are, I hope that we can talk about it um, after this. But the real reason I'm glad that my mom is here is because I so admire the way that I have seen her serve her church and her God with her life. One time I was asked in an interview, so who's your favorite Southern Presbyterian theologian, which is like the most Southern Presbyterian interview question of all time. But my answer was easy. I told them it was my mom and dad in that order. Sorry, dad, but it's true. I know that no one prays for me more than my mom does. And I'm, I'm pretty sure no one may pray for this church more than my mom does. Paul once wrote to his protege, Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, 
Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. I know that I'm not the only person here today that this is true for, that the faith that first dwelt in your mothers and grandmothers now dwells in you. So for that, thank you mothers and thank you to my mom. You see, God has always and will always powerfully work through women. Because in his grace, that is how he designed women. And that's where I want to start this morning with the first words we hear from God about how he designed women. And so we start in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. The first thing we see is that God makes mankind in his image. And in doing so, he makes them male and female. Our triune God, who is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and one God, so diverse and united in his essence, creates beings in his image that are diverse and united in their essence. We are united as all being made humans, and yet we are diverse in expressing that humanity in two biological sexes, male and female, that are God-given. And yet, you've heard me say this, but this was so absolutely radical in the ancient Near East, this idea that a woman was just as much of an image bearer as a man. It was so radically pro-woman in that patriarchal world. And I really don't think that we can appreciate that enough with our 21st century sensibilities. So in Genesis 1, we see God giving both men and women the same important roles to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over the animals, to multiply and fill the earth. These are royal jobs that God gives to men and women. Dominion, authority, multiplication. God is commanding both men and women to exercise leadership and authority over all creation and under the rule of God. It's important to note for, for what we're gonna talk about later, that this is a job that neither of them could do alone. God makes men and women with a need for one another. Like, not to get too basic, but the way God made men and women, there was simply no way that they could accomplish this job of multi multiplying and filling the earth without the collaboration of the other. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So from what we have studied about God the last several months, this should not surprise us. The triune God of the Bible, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a relational being in his essence, makes us in his image. And sure enough, he makes us relational. And as we relate to one another, we bear his image, and we participate in the work that he has called us to do. So it's, it's really important that some of us are male and some of us are female, and we would be less in our collective image bearing if we were without one or the other sexes that God created. And just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles that they do in order to accomplish the purposes of God, God created us male and female and gave us different roles in order to accomplish his purposes. We get to understand more of this dynamic in, in Genesis 2. We talked about this earlier in our Genesis series, but Genesis 2 is a retelling of the Genesis 1 creation story from a different vantage point with a different focus. While Genesis 1 is telling like a broad sweeping creation story that focuses on the similarities between men and women, Genesis 2 tells the creation story with the focus 
on the sixth day of creation. And it also draws out the differences between men and women. We find Adam in the garden. And we hear in Genesis 2, the first not good in the Bible. And the whole sin thing hadn't happened yet. But something is not good. So God does something. He deems that Adam, it's not good for Adam to be alone. That's the not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. So God does something sort of peculiar before he fixes Adam's loneliness problem. You see in verse 18, God decides he's gonna make a helper. And in the next verse, God has Adam start naming animals. It seems like a total non sequitur that there's this kind of like naming of animals that happens right in between when God determines there needs to be a helper and then when God makes the helper. So what's up with that? Well, in the ancient Near East, the ability to give someone a name meant that they had some sort of power or authority over you. You remember like later in, you maybe are familiar later in the Old Testament when the Babylonian captivity happens and like Daniel is captured. What does King Nebuchadnezzar do to Daniel and to Daniel's friends? He renames them, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And he's able to do this because he has the authority to do that. It's not that different from today. Like often if a person is giving you a nickname, they have some sort of authority or leadership over you. Maybe it's a coach or a teacher or a boss or someone who's just a leader in your friend group. In college, I had a crush on my lab partner um, in oceanography, which is a really important class for preparing to be a pastor, oceanography. Um, she, she gave me a nickname that I did not love, but I let her use it because she had a little spell over me. And no, it was not Chrissy Trap, but Chrissy does like to tease me about it and calls me Beaker to this day. Yes, Beaker, like in a lab, or Beaker like the Muppet. Yeah. But what we see in Genesis is that God brings Adam all the animals to name. And Adam would have seen pairs of these animals, and as they came before him, he would have both established his authority over them by naming them and he would have discovered that, as verse 20 says, for Adam, there was, not a, there was not found a helper fit for him. And it's into this newfound longing and need that God creates a helper out of Adam and brings her to him. And it's, in then, it's then that Adam names her woman. He bursts into the first ever poetry. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So from the very beginning, we see that our triune relational God creates his image bearers with a social structure of authority and with different roles to play in their project of exercising dominion and filling the earth. And to be clear, this isn't a structure where all women submit to all men. That is nowhere in the Bible. But there is a clear leadership given to men in the context of marriage and in the context of worshiping as the people of God. And that is apparent in how God has only male priests in the Old Testament and only male elders and deacons in the New Testament. And that way of relating to one another may sound, it may sound really degrading and old-fashioned, but it's not degrading. 
I want you to see that the Bible does not imagine Eve's role of helper as degrading. It simply can't. Because whenever that Hebrew word, azer, helper, whenever that Hebrew word, azer, is used to describe, that word is used to describe Eve one time, the rest of the Bible, the person that that word, azer, is used to describe in the Old Testament is almost always God. It's not degrading to be called a helper. God is a helper. By playing the role that God has given them in marriage and in church, women are giving us a wondrous glimpse into the heart of God who willingly is the help of people who are weak and who struggle and who need grace. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our azer, our help, and our shield. Psalm 33, 20. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your azer, your help through the skies in his majesty, Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-six. But I am poor and needy, hasten to me, O God. You are my azer, my help, my deliverer, Psalm 70, verse five. And this is an important point. Men in leadership need help. Thought I might get an amen right there. But it is, re- it is true. Like God made men in such a way that they need help. It was not good for Adam to be alone. And it's not good for male church officers to be alone as they steward their God-ordained leadership of the church. We need help. And listen, I don't want to be uh, shortchanging y'all as I preach on a sermon on women's roles and then spend a lot of time about talking about what women can't do, what their roles aren't. But I do think that we need to um, spend a little bit of time explaining what the Bible teaches about this. So. I'm gonna touch on this, but if you want to do a deeper dive, uh, I'm I'm gonna point you towards a couple resources. The first is Kathy Keller's book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Another uh, another resource where I would point you is a sermon series that another pastor in our our denomination did that was more in depth and uh, several sermons on this subject. His name is Kyle Wells, and he's at a Presbyterian church in Santa Barbara, California called Christ Presbyterian. And he has a sermon series called Co-Laborers in Christ. You can find it online if you Google like any of that stuff I just said. Kyle Wells, Christ Presbyterian, Santa Barbara. But also, we, um, one of the reasons that we're thinking about this is because of the encouragement of our denomination to do so. Several years ago, there was a report, a study report done at the denominational level by an ad interim committee. And it was a report on women's roles in the church. And we have that report it's kind of long, but it's really, it's good. I've read it. It's, it's very helpful. And um, it's printed out and on the table, one of the tables in Main Street as you leave. If you want to grab one of those for free, just take it home. Uh, we would love for you to be blessed by that. Okay, let's, let's start here, though, um, on the subject of, like, what are, what are roles that God has designed specifically for men? Um, I think it's important that we see whenever the New Testament authors, particularly Paul, are wrestling with women's roles in the church, they're always going back to Genesis and God's design. And what we see in Genesis is that before Eve is created, God gives Adam priestly duties. So Genesis 2.15 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word work could also be translated guard, to guard it, work it, to keep it. And these two Hebrew words for guarding and keeping throughout scripture are used to describe another role and it's 
priests. Priests guard and they keep. And in the Old Testament, we see that there are women like Deborah who are ruling. We see that there are women prophetesses like Miriam and Huldah. But nowhere in the Old Testament is there a woman who is a priest. We see that God gave the first man, Adam, the priestly duty of guarding and keeping the garden. And then he also gives Adam the law right after, right after he gives him the job, the job of guarding and keeping. He says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this leadership role of guarding and keeping God's place and God's word was given to the first man. And then God gives the priests the duty of guarding and keeping the tabernacle and the temple. And like Adam had the duty to tell Eve about God's law, about that tree, God gives the priests the responsibility of teaching the law to the people. A lot of times when we imagine like Old Testament offices, we think of like the prophet was the one who was teaching everyone all the time. But, but that's not true. The prophet would come as the mouthpiece of God on occasion to the people and say like, thus saith the Lord. But we see in Leviticus 10, 11, that it's the priests who were the ones who were engaged in the regular teaching of God's word to the people. This is Leviticus 10, verse 11. It says this to the priests, you are to teach the people all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. All right, why all this talk about priests? Well, it's important because the apostolic role that Jesus then gives to his disciples in the New Testament is in the exact same pattern as the pattern of priests in the Old Testament. And if that's true, it makes sense why Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. And some people might argue, well, Jesus didn't do this because it would have been culturally unacceptable for there to be women apostles. But y'all, Jesus had no problem pushing against the culture when it came to how he involved women in his ministry. Think about it. In John 4, Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman at the well, and he enlists her as the first evangelist to her town. And the disciples, they can't believe that he's speaking to a woman. They don't, it doesn't say we can't believe you're speaking to a Samaritan. They can't believe he's speaking to a woman privately. But he is. Because Jesus wasn't worried about the cultural norms of women in ministry. Jesus allowed a woman to let her hair down and wash his feet with her hair and tears in the presence of really religious people. Jesus allowed Mary to sit at his feet and take the posture of a disciple. God worked in his providence that the only people who would witness all three events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection would be women. And that those women would be the first witnesses of the resurrection and evangelists to the apostles who didn't listen to the women, which is maybe something we should note. And Jesus had no problem having them be the first evangelists of his testimony when culture of his of his resurrection, when culturally a woman's testimony was not admissible in court in the first century in Rome. Jesus had no problem involving women in culturally progressive ways. So then we ought to pay attention to the reality that his 12 apostles were men. And that when they replaced Judas in the book of Acts, they gave no consideration to adding a woman. I mean, y'all, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were there at that meeting when they were replacing Judas. And the two Marys were definitely qualified 
where they were definitely qualified to take that role when it came to their giftings, their experience, their faithfulness, and yet they weren't made apostles because it was a priestly role. And the role of priests has always been set aside for men throughout God's story of redemption. Jesus gives his male apostles the authority to do the same kind of guarding and keeping that the Old Testament priests did. Let me illustrate that. Think about the Great Commission. Now, we imagine in the Great Commission that Jesus is speaking to all of us, and in a sense, we are all participating in the Great Commission. But when you read the passage, you see that the people he's speaking to, the only people on the mountain with him, are the 11 apostles. Jesus is giving the commission to the 11 apostles, and he is specifically commissioning them. And think about what the jobs are that he gives them at the end of Matthew when he's commissioning them. He tells them to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptism and teaching. Baptism, the right of joining the church. So the apostles are the ones admitting and not admitting members. They are guarding Here's that word, guarding, keeping. They are guarding the church. They've been given, as Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 18, the keys to the kingdom. And you know who usually has a big set of keys? Guards. Guards have keys. And again, Jesus tells the apostles at the Great Commission to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Remember, the first teacher of God's law was the first priest, Adam. And the Old Testament priests were the teachers of God's law. And the apostles are now meant to fulfill the priestly duty to teach all that Jesus has commanded. And Adam, the Old Testament priests, and the apostles were all men given authority to guard the truth and meaning of Jesus' teaching and to exhort the church to keep in line with Jesus' teaching. Y'all, this is a really helpful lens to have when you're reading the rest of the New Testament, particularly for following some of the authors like Paul's logic. With this lens, Paul doesn't sound like a flip-flopper when he's giving, giving instructions on how women should pray and prophesy in church in 1 Corinthians 11. And then three chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says women should be silent in church. So like, which is it, Paul? Should they be praying and prophesying as you're instructing them, or should they be silent? Why are you giving them instructions on one and then telling them to be quiet on the other? It's because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is telling them, telling them to be silent on the priestly matter of guarding and keeping that God has given to the elders of the church when it comes to determining the true authoritative teaching of God's word. That is a priestly authority that God has given to men. It's why we don't have women preaching in gathered worship here at Christ the King. We believe that God has called, ordained men to preach the word and to administer the sacraments. But this ordained role is not given so that the officer can lord their power over others. Ultimately, these differing roles are given to men and women because we believe God is telling us more about himself. This God who made so many beautifully complementary things in his creation. Think about all the pairs that God knits into creation. Light, dark, rhythm, harmony, salty and sweet, my personal favorite. Sky, sea. Uh, pastor and theologian Brett McCracken writes this, what is lost when the idea of complementarity is abandoned or demeaned because like anything good, it can be abused or applied in problematic ways? 
among many other things, beauty is lost. Imagine if the earth were entirely land with no ocean. Imagine if every painting in the Louvre was a monochrome. Imagine if we could only taste salty things or only hear major chords. Contrast is fundamental to what we find beautiful. It is central to the most spellbinding paintings, the most memorable culinary experiences, the most stirring symphonies. Why are humans universally drawn to sunrises and sunsets as the most picturesque and strangely transcendent moments of the day? Because they are the moments of most intense contrast between light and dark, day and night. So, God makes us, man and woman, to participate in the beauty of complementarity of creation that is pointing to his glory. And he gives men and women different roles to play in order to display his beauty. And in the marriage and in the church, God gives women the role of helper. So, second, women's roles in ministry. Um, I told you I was speaking at this middle school conference and uh, Joe Deegan, who's, uh, who helps lead our worship here at Christ the King, is the leader of music there. And after I preached one night, all the kids would go back and do small groups like in their cabins. And it's pretty dark. We're at this camp like in east, northeast of Tyler. Um, and there was one kid who told me that had, I guess, just gotten left behind. It wasn't the Christ King kid. Your youth ministers and youth workers had your kids. But some other church had a kid who didn't know where to go. And <laughs> Joe, uh, Joe comes up to this little boy and asks, he's like, hey man, um, do you know where your group is? He goes, yeah, I know where they are. I'll go find them. And the little boy turns and opens the door and walks into a closet. <laughs> and Joe's like, I think I'm gonna help you out, buddy. Let's go find your group. And y'all, we need helpers to come alongside us as we find our way, or we will wander off in the dark, or maybe a closet. And I think that's a great picture of what we're talking about. Our, our officers are going to take us in certain directions as we lead the church and care for God's people and proclaim the gospel. And we need help to not, not march right into a closet when someone needs shepherding care or a decision is being made. And the Lord is our help in this. He really is. The Lord is our help in this. And because of that, he has given his church helpers who bear his image. And I want to be clear, just because God has given women the role of helper when it comes to marriage and to the church, this does not mean that women are severely limited in what they can and can't do in ministry. We see this in the Bible. God calls Eve to exercise dominion. She is the first woman in ministry called to serve God for the good of others. We see women in the Bible engaged in word ministry. Mary singing her Magnificat in the book of Luke and her word-filled song has blessed men and women throughout the ages. The same can be said for Hannah's song in the Old Testament. We see women governing in a civil capacity with Deborah functioning as a judge, hearing cases and applying God's word and wisdom to them. We see women engaged in the ministry of sacrificial giving, the widow and her two copper coins. We see the women that we read about in Luke 8 patroning the ministry of Jesus, Phoebe patroning the ministry of Paul. We see women ministering through hospitality, Nympha hosting the church in her home in Colossae, the Roman church meeting in women's homes. We see women spiritually mothering people. The apostle Paul 
writes that Rufus's mother has become like a mother to him too. We don't know what happened to Paul's family life after his conversion, but Paul grew up in a Jewish family and it very likely severed some of his relationships. And it could be that Rufus's mother is stepping in to the gap, spiritually mothering Paul. We see women engaged in mercy ministry, Dorcas making clothes for the needy and for widows in the town of Joppa. And I put her in the list because her name's Dorcas. We see women in power like Esther. I just love that name, sorry. We see women in power like Esther using her power to save her people. And there's so many other examples all throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament of women who are engaged in vital ministry for the sake of God's people, for the good of their neighbor and all for the glory of God. So what? Last point. In light of this, we want to create ways for women in our church to come alongside our officers as we seek to lead and better serve our church body. We're starting two new roles here at Christ the King, the role of deacon, assistant, and elder advisor. And both of these roles directly reflect the way that we see women throughout the Old Testament and New Testament serving God's people and helping men who were in positions of authority over God's people. We believe that the role of deacon assistant and elder advisor, that they're both going to enhance the shepherding and care done by our ordained officers. These roles are not meant to replace elders or deacons' involvement, nor are they going to operate independently of our elders or deacons because our elders and deacons still bear primary responsibility for the shepherding and care of all our members, both men and women. And I want you to know that your session voted on this to do this. It was a unanimous vote, an enthusiastic unanimous vote because they themselves have felt that they are missing something without more strategic help of women in shepherding and care. But I want you to hear me. This is not work that we've suddenly decided is biblical for women to do. This has always been happening informally at Christ the King. Our elders and deacons who are wise have already been doing this, seeking out the perspective and help of their wives for whom we are so thankful and seeking out the help of other godly and gifted women in our church. But for our church with its size and unique leadership and membership dynamics and even in the city that we're in, we see that there is wisdom in providing a path that better streamlines the connection between our ordained officers and women to help them in their calling. Because the reality is that women can enter into certain shepherding and care needs in ways that men can, we think that this will be a huge blessing. In pastoral cases involving women, other women will likely notice, empathize, and be aware of things in ways that men might not. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. So this is critical to how the church shepherds and cares for women. And yet, this is not merely bringing women into matters that are women's issues. Because there is no area in the work of the elders and deacons that would not benefit from the advice and counsel of wise women. And as overseers of the church, pastors and elders bear the burden of ensuring that the full Imago Dei is incorporated at every level. That means in women's issues, men's issues, mission, pastoral care, and more. Because no matter how gospel-centered or emotionally intelligent your pastors are, and I'll let you be the judge of that, but no matter how gospel-centered and emotionally intelligent your elders are or your deacons are, 
The fact is that we are missing half the Imago Dei when we shepherd and care for the church without the sought-out perspective, wisdom, and help of godly women. And that is what we are trying to do here. We want to complete the picture, first and foremost, because we believe that it is biblical to do so, but also because we believe it's wise and a loving thing to do for our church. So a couple just like specifics that I want y'all to know about what we're doing here. Regarding deacon assistance, there's, there's provision for this role in our book of church order that uses that language, deacon assistant. And so that is what we are calling this role as pertaining to BCO 9-7. Regarding elder advisors, this is a role that we believe not only aligns with biblical parameters and our confessional standards, but it's one that seeks to implement the recommendations of that ad interim report that I told you about um, that's in the back. Candidates for these roles will be held to similar standards as our officers in terms of character and they'll undergo training that's very similar to that of our ordained officers. They'll be commissioned, we hope, Lord willing, they will be commissioned in the new year here at Christ the King. They will not only enter into shepherding and care situations alongside our church officers, they will be in diaconate meetings and session meetings to provide perspective and wisdom and insight into diaconate and session decisions. The gifts and skills of these women will be utilized under the oversight of the session, which we believe will be a deep encouragement and blessing to them and to our church. Candidates will be selected and appointed by the session, and we plan to eventually have you, the congregation, submitting recommendations for future candidate classes. Y'all, I, I really think this is going to be so good for the life of our church and will make us a better, healthier, wiser, more compassionate church from the leadership down. And, and, I, and I want you to hear me say, I'm, like, I'm really thankful for the people who've been working to move this along. Clay was working on this before I even got here. I'm thankful for him for moving this. Leslie Peacock was working on this long before I got here. I'm thankful for her for working on this. And I'm glad that Catherine and I have kind of gotten to take the baton and keep going. So y'all please pray for the women who will take on these roles. And women of our church, I, I want you to know that I am cheering you on as you bear the image of God to our world and to one another for God's glory and for our good. We desperately need you to do that. And as you do, you point us to the Lord Jesus, the one who for our very salvation took a role of service not because he was less than the Father, not because he was weaker than the Father, but because, as Paul said in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love your church. You love your church more than we ever could. And you demonstrated that um, through the sacrificial gift of your son. And Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have loved your bride. And we pray that you would care for your bride here at Christ the King. Um, would you guide us and give us your spirit and the fruit of your spirit so that we might uh, be a fragrant offering to you and to, um, to our city around us 
that they might see us loving one another well and be wooed to be part of that same love, um, your triune love, whose image you have given us the task of bearing. And we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.